Uh, as it is Father's Day, I thought we'd have a little fun as well as I came across an article that had 50 reasons why it's good to be a man. Now, don't worry, we won't be looking at all 50 of them, but I want to throw out a few just to, for you guys to celebrate because sometimes the weight of being a dad, a granddad, and the responsibilities can get a little heavy. So we'll lighten it up a little bit and let's celebrate what it means to be a, a man. And uh, for you ladies, just to bear with us for a minute. One reason why it's good to be a man is, is because your pals can be trusted to never tap trap you with the saying, or question, so do you notice anything different about me? <laughs> That's a thing to something to celebrate. Uh, another is if something mechanical doesn't work, you can bash it with a hammer and throw it across the room until it works. I'll add that part until it works or until it's totally destroyed. I like this one. You can uh, go to the bathroom without a support group. <laughs> and I'll add to that. That uh, no one will care if you pay any attention to them or say anything to them while you're doing your business in the bathroom. They just don't care. And then one that I really like this because I resemble this comment. You can do your nails with a pocket knife. There you go. I don't clip my nails with a pocket knife, but I do my cuticles with a pocket knife. I'll show you and show you the proof of it. Uh, one of the things I think I've noticed, too. And maybe this is just me, but I think it's more broad than just me. One of the things I think uh, that men love is a free deal or something that's a really, really good deal that they just can't pass up. Right. Well, uh, today I'm holding an object that represents something that I thought was an incredible deal that I just couldn't pass up on. But after I purchased a stainless steel water softener for $4,000 with my payments spread out over month after month, I looked a little bit like this guy. What did I just do? What have I gotten myself into? Have you ever experienced buyer's remorse? I know some of you ladies have experienced that too. Well, this is called Lanosoft. So the, the, the upside of it is that with this stainless steel water softener, I received 10 years of soap products, of which I'm still on 13 years of using up these bars of soap. I was just talking with my wife this morning. She doesn't know it yet, but the box that contains the rest of the bars have been moved already to Fort Collins. <laughs> Because I am bound and determined to use up every single one of these and get my money's worth. And always to remember what a foolish choice that was. Well, the other, the other upside was I learned some things about buying uh, objects, especially with uh, a higher dollar amount attached to it. I learned that you never do it under pressure. If it's a really good deal, it'll still be there the next day. And I learned to pray, to ask God about it, give it some time. And I learned that if necessary, to involve people in godly counsel. So you don't experience that dreaded buyer's remorse. Now, I know we've all experienced that on some level at some time. Now, I want you to think about and take those feelings and translate it into your workplace. In the times where you may have felt a worker's remorse. 
Maybe because you took a job and once you got there, you realized this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I was looking for. Or maybe a worker's remorse that caused you to feel similar feelings as buyer's remorse because of a project that you didn't do very well. Or as you look back, you think, oh, I could have treated people better or whatever the case may be. Now, as we mentioned last week. Approximately 60 percent of our waking hours is spent in what we would consider our work place, our vocation. And here's a graphic. It says 50 percent on here. But just to put it in perspective, that's a, a big chunk of time to be investing a lot of intellectual, emotional and other energies. To have a sense of regret, would you agree? So we're in a series in Ephesians. How can we find a sense of satisfaction from our labor and get instead of under the sun and have the perspective like Solomon did, even after he achieved some great things, he said, this is all in vain. This life under the sun is miserable. The answer to get out of that perspective and find satisfaction in our labor is to get over the sun, to get God's perspective on our work. And leverage it for his glory and it will bring satisfaction. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6 once again. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, it's page 677. As we continue to think about how do we find a labor that satisfies and how do we find a labor, a work that will not end in a sense of workers remorse. Well, the first principle we looked at last week was this. We must be obedient and honor those who are over us, supervisors, bosses, managers, and do it as an act of worship. Now, the next principle, the next blank in your notes this morning is the first ones. If you're following along is next is uh, by focusing on being a God pleaser Versus a people pleaser. So in verse five, we looked at that previous principle, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in sincerity of heart as to Christ. And now we're looking at this principle with verse six, not with eye service as what men pleasers. But as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Now, by the way, since it's Father's Day, each of these principles could be translated in our roles as fathers, as grandfathers, as mentors. We must focus not just on trying to please our kids, our grandkids, but please God. There's going to be times where they are not going to like the instruction we give them, the boundaries we give them, the discipline we talked about in Ephesians that we provide for them as we please God. There's times they're not going to like it and they might even hate it. But get to give us the motivation to keep doing what we know we should do, we do it to please God. Well, what's the mindset of a God pleaser? Well, first of all, let's talk about what it isn't. It's not saying I don't need to please my boss. It's not 
having a sense, I want to please my boss. It's okay to want to please your boss. But the greatest motivation behind it is that you want to please your boss, your supervisor, because you want to please the one who is even overlooking that person's shoulder. Because you realize that the quality control standards, the expectations that are placed upon you as an employee is not just from your supervisor or your boss. It runs up the ladder even further than that. To God in the heavenlies. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as our ultimate boss. Consequently, we seek to please Him. Not just when the boss is around. That's what it means with eye service. Have you ever noticed those people in your workplace? We mentioned the Eddie Haskell types last week. The brown nosers. The ones that are constantly trying to kiss up to the boss. And, and uh, when there's two weeks from the review time, all of a sudden they're working hard. Or when they're around or they know that the boss is going to come to the job site that day, what happens? Well, there's a fury of activity going on. God says, don't serve your employers like that. Keep in mind that God is always watching Consequently, doing the will from the heart is what we should do with good will, with good, good service, it says. I was reminded of a professor in Bible college, one of my theologian professors was teaching in chapel one day on Psalm 139, where it talks about all the omnis of God, the omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. And he was describing how he loved that when he was teaching his kids what to look for in a person to marry and to date. And he recalled to mind the times where he finally let them go on a date. He would say, son, daughter, go out, have a great time. And then just before leaving the doors, he would say, but remember, God is watching He wanted them to have that haunting thought or a good thought to guide their conduct in that date. What a perspective to have every time we enter whatever our workplace is. God is watching 24-7. Are we trying to please Him in our work? Well, what are some other measurements of being a God pleaser? I'd like to invite you to turn with me. Keep a finger here as we'll come back to it. But turn, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, page 697, if you're using your pew Bible. Some other measurements of being a God pleaser. Now, if you're not familiar with Hebrews chapter 11, you need to understand that this is an incredible chapter of the Bible. For there's listed there some heroes to the faith in the Old Testament and into the New Testament. People who displayed an amazing faith that also was not just in, in word, but with great deeds. A faith with action. I want to look at verse 6 with you, where it says, 
But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Remember Ephesians, we're talking about what does it take to be a God-pleaser. Here it says, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. What is that saying? It's saying that if we do not take our faith to work and implement it, that we cannot please God 50% of our lives. That should cause us to think, don't you, don't you think? 50%. So what does it mean to take our faith to the workplace? Well, like last week we discussed it, it means that we should be the greatest workers in that setting. The hardest workers. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. But beyond that, it should be as we are doing our work heartily for our employers as unto the Lord, that if God gives us an opportunity to share our faith, to share the gospel message with a fellow worker or even a boss, that we take that opportunity when it comes. Why? Because we're trying to be God-pleasers, not men-pleasers. What, what would man say? What would mankind say? Well, you can't do that in the workplace. You might lose your job. We have come a long way in our culture to where we're, Christians are accepting that. Well, I can't talk about God in my workplace. That's nonsense. That's not bringing your faith to work. If God gives you the opportunity, who are you going to please? Are you going to please God or are you going to please man? That's what it boils down to. Now, I understand that with that kind of action, there comes a great risk. There comes a risk that you could be reprimanded. There comes a risk that you might even lose your job. But you know what? I think that is a fear that keeps us from obeying at times. Because oftentimes, when, if we are doing our work well, we are going to be valued. And oftentimes, if we are obedient to the Lord, even if we, we fear there might be some repercussions, you know what I've found? Maybe you've realized this as well. I've found that God actually rewards you for that. I'll give you a perfect example uh, Pastor Moses and uh, was reading the resolution for men, that book that was based on the movie Courageous. He had never seen the movie and the boys hadn't. So we all sat down and watched it together a week or so ago. And there's one portion in the movie where a man named Javier is doing a great job in his workplace and he's enjoying his job. And for the first time in a long time, has some stability and financial income to provide for his family, which he had a great heart to do. And the supervisor calls him in and offers him a promotion. And then at the end, he says, but this is what I want you to do. If there's 13 boxes that come in, I want you to just write down your received 12. Can you do that? What was he asking him to do? He's asking him to cook the books, so to speak, right? So now Javier is faced with a dilemma. Am I going to please God or man? Am I going to try to provide for my family and maybe compromise my convictions here a little bit? Or 
Am I going to follow God and what he's asking me to do? In the wrestling match, he he settled it in his mind that he was going to do the right thing. The next day he came back in and said, I just can't do that. I really need this job and I, I don't want to lose my job, but I just can't do that because it's not right. He thought that was going to be the end of it right there. And instead, his boss gave him the promotion because it was a test. And then he said, I'm so thankful you answered that way because we've gone through several of these interviews already and no one has passed the test yet. To please God means to bring our faith to work and exercise it just as we would anywhere else. Even if it's risky. Do you believe that? And that is the only hope to change the tide of the way our culture is bending. What else does faith mean in the workplace? What else does a measurement of being a God pleaser look like? Well, faith and risk is one and then you may not be able to see it on the screen, but excellence is another. Well, where does this come from? Go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7. Serve the Lord, the previous verse, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, and then verse 7, with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Some of your translations might say wholeheartedly as to the Lord and not to men. That means... In the original Greek word, it means with zeal, eagerness, with gusto, a wholeheartedness, 110%. And not doing so because you feel like you have to, but because you get to, you want to, because of what Christ has done for you. You do it for Him even if there is no reciprocation of praise or promotions or pay or anything that goes with it. If Jesus is our ultimate supervisor, which he is. And we will stand before him with the greatest work review we'll ever experience, which we will. Then mediocrity cannot be something we pursue. It's got to be something more like excellence that defines us. Take a look at this quote from a great motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar. He said, efficiency is getting the job done right. Effectiveness is getting the right job done. And excellence is getting the right job done well. Isn't that good? Now, I know I've shared a lot about my relationship with my father growing up. But it wasn't all bad. There were some great things that he instilled within me, and this was one of them. He was a great carpenter by trade. And he did wonderful work. And I remember him telling me often, Dan, if there's a job worth doing, it's worth doing right for the first time. Right the first time. And I saw him exemplify that in his life. 
And that even translated over into things like hunting. I remember when he allowed me as a 10-year-old or 11-year-old to get my first gun. He insisted that it would be a single shot. And it was a 22. And the reason was because he wanted me to make the first shot count. And so I became fairly proficient and good at making the first shot count. And even when I graduated to semi-automatic rifles, more often than not, and please forgive me, ladies or others are a little squeamish about this. I won't get too detailed, I promise. But more often than not, when God gave me a deer, a rabbit, or squirrel, or whatever it was, it was with the first shot. That's how our work life should be. Doing it right the first time. Doing it well the first time. Making it count the first time. Speaking of fatherhood, this is something we really have to work with with our kids. Don't accept mediocrity from them. Pull them out. Call them out for excellence. Not perfection. There's a difference. I know some of you perfectionists out there, your perfectionistic blood is just boiling right now. It's just like, oh, man, yes, I have permission now to pursue perfection. No, you don't. I have permission now to get perfection out of my kids. No, you don't. Because it's not possible. But I love one of the quotes of Vince Lombardi, the great legendary Packer coach, said, perfection is not attainable. Did you hear that? It's not attainable. But if we chase perfection, we can catch excellence. Chase perfection and you can catch excellence. And here's where I think the difference is between perfectionism and excellence is when we chase being perfect as doing a great job and we fall short which we will because we are all sinners. Then we go to the Lord and we own up to it. And we receive His grace. We give ourselves permission. It's okay. And we rest in the fact that even in failure, we pleased Him because we brought it to Him. There's so much peace in that. Okay, I only have one more Sunday. So I'm not going to hold back this morning. I'm going to I'm going to let it go a little more. One of the things that God has used in my heart to show me that this next stage is from him is a burning drive a holy discontent that I've realized about myself that drives me. And it's this phrase that I hear even voiced in these words, good enough Christianity. Well, that's good enough. Or that's close enough. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, in the workplace or in the church, in your ministry or ministry in the community. Here's some examples. 
You've had a rough week. You've committed to teach Sunday school or children's church or something else on Sunday morning. And you think to yourself on Saturday night, well, that's good enough. I'll just get up in the morning and wing it and put it together. Close enough. Or you've agreed to organize some volunteers. And rather than trying to do it your very best, you kind of wing it and pull it together in the last second. Oh, that's close enough. It happens in the workplace as well. You're assigned a job. Maybe it's a job you don't care for too much. Let's just say cleaning toilets. And you go to clean the toilet. And there's some dirt behind there you see. And ah, that's good enough. God is watching. God sees what no one else may see or notice. Jesus gave us His very best. Doesn't that demand and call for our best in return? What is the prime directive for us as followers of Jesus Christ? The prime directive is not called the good commandment. It's called the great commandment. We are called... Doug read it in the first service to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul and all our mind and our neighbor as ourselves. That's not called the good commandment. That's called the great commandment. And I think I've come to believe this as a true statement. Tom Rayner says in the opening line of the first chapter of his book called Breakout Churches, he said this, it is a sin to be good if God has called us to be great. Do you believe that? Excellence. God calls us to pursue excellence. Greatness. And have you ever thought about this? That when James and John and other disciples were vying for the great position, the right hand of, of Jesus in the future kingdom, that Jesus never rebuked them for the desire to be great? It was the motivation, the squabbling, the wrong heart. Colossians 3.23 backs this as well. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord with gusto. With greatness and excellence as to the Lord. Why? Because He deserves it. Why? Because that's what we're called to. Why? Because... That's what catches the eye of others to see that we're different. And also why? Because there is reward for those who do it. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he received the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Remember Hebrews eleven six. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We just read that. With faith, we please Him and He rewards that. 
even if it's not on this side of heaven. How do we live a life over the sun, a work life, getting over the sun and find a labor that satisfies by focusing on the future reward? Have you ever poured your heart and soul into a task or project or to a case to people surrounding that? And you've done a great job and you just sense an internal peace that you have done the very best you can, but then it's never recognized, never rewarded, or maybe even you're passed over for a promotion and someone else that's much less deserving gets it because they're in with the boss, one of those eye pleasers, brown nosers. Or maybe even worse yet, you've come up with a great idea that's transformed your workplace. And your boss claims it as, as their idea. Or as I overheard in the hallway in a conversation this week. And trust me, I wasn't eavesdropping. My door's open, they're conversing in the hallway, I couldn't help. But one person described how that he did laid all the groundwork for this sale. And someone else, while he was away, came and stole it from him. Stuff like this happens all the time in the workplace because we live in a world that's cursed by sin. And we work with sinners just like we are. So the question that comes to my mind is, how are we going to handle that? Well, this principle is something we can remember and gain great comfort from. So even when we feel undermined, when we don't feel appreciated, when we may not get the pay that we feel like we deserve or promotions or other perks that go along with the system of the world in terms of reward, we can know in our heart of hearts we've done it as to the Lord and that He will give us those rewards that are out of this world. Take a look at how First Peter says it. Chapter 2, verse 18, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, look at this, but also to those who are harsh, those who are unfair. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. It's all right. There is... A reward greater than the praise of a boss, a promotion, a company, perk. And it's this, it's peace. Peace in the heart that you know you've done your best as unto the Lord. And that you will be rewarded for it one day, if not now. And guess what? That's a perk that no one outside of Christ can experience. Listen to Isaiah fifty-seven twenty-one. There is no peace, Isaiah says. For the wicked. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And that's not meant to say is like, oh, you know, so you're not going to have any peace. But I hope that wells up within our heart a compassion for others who do not experience the peace of God and a realization that they're only living out the reality of their worldview. And what's most important to them that's so different, they need Jesus. 
pray for them. Endure even ill treatment so you can be that light for them. So that they can one day experience the peace that you have. Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, let's take a look at verse 9 for the last principle. Finding a labor that satisfies. That will keep us from a worker's remorse. Paul through the inspiration of God, actually addresses employers, bosses, supervisors, and managers here. He says, and you, and the word used here is masters, do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Your translation might say he doesn't play favorites. Something to that effect. So here's the principle. Employers must focus on having a ministry of compassion. A ministry of compassion, a ministry that cares for the people, not necessarily they're just over, but they're placed there by God to serve. Verse 9 says, do the same things. What is Paul referring to? It's referring to, Back to the verse we started off with last week, where he says, give, obey your supervisors, respect them, honor them, fear them, obey them. God is saying, treat them the same way you want to be treated. Have you ever noticed how that sometimes maybe a peer that you're working with gets promoted to supervisor and all of a sudden they become this snot of a person (laughs) for lack of a better word and they start pushing their weight around and acting like they're the i don't know king's cheese comes to mind you've worked under people like that i know so he says to the employees or employers Don't threat. Don't push your weight around. Treat them like a person who's redeemed like you are. A a co-heir of Jesus Christ. The same blood that dripped from Emmanuel's veins not only covers you, it covers them. You are equal before God. Treat them as equals. And I can't help but to think of Paul. Let's say in the context of the workplace, he was a professional, wasn't he? Professional apostle. And what I've seen with supervisors, and there's a, there's a huge cultural push. And even we are taught in schools to have a professional separation with those we are serving and those we supervise. And I, I know there's some wisdom there. And yet, oftentimes, I think we could take that way too far. What did Paul say? We did not only bring, in 1 Thessalonians 2, the gospel to you, our professional, this is my job, my calling, but we open wide our hearts to you as well. We displayed before you even our hurts. It was a transparent kind of leadership. I tell you what, that, that kind of leadership I'm attracted to. Care enough, even sometimes, not only to minister to them, but sometimes share your own burdens with them. 
if it's appropriate. How else can we have a ministry of compassion towards those we might supervise? And this would transfer itself even to those that we work with in the church if we're responsible for recruiting or overseeing people in ministries in the church. How else can we execute that with a compassionate heart? We do it in a way that's very caring, but also in a way that's fair. God doesn't play favorites. Isn't that great? I mean, so many times we see the favoritism expressed towards personalities, towards the brown nosers or whatever. But God's not that way. He wants us to emulate and mimic him. So I want to share with you just some thoughts, and I'm sure there's tons of them we could put down here. But ways sometimes employers, managers, supervisors can treat those that they supervise unfairly. And remember, this could Take, uh, be transferred into in, in terms of overseeing people in the church as well. One is to expect them to perform in ways you never prescribed. You have a ministry description, you have a job description, and in your mind, you're thinking or wanting them to perform Beyond what you've ever described to them or what's listed in their description. They can't read your mind. You have to communicate. And the best way to be fair is to is to share that with them up front. And then if there's new things that come along, you have that discussion. You share it with them. With care. And you communicate, make sure they understand. And then you expect that of them. And here's another way I've seen. A lack of fairness. Not paying someone what they're worth. I've heard so many people describe how even great workers, I'm thinking of several of you, that are treated harshly because you're a good worker. And there's wages that you might be due there with withheld because it's a power play. Christian employers and supervisors should not be that way. Don't be that way. Honor them by paying them well. And this is something else that's not fair. Is when sometimes in Christian businesses, there's a mindset or even ministries where everybody gets the same pay and, and perks. Even when there's greater responsibilities by some and when there's better performers in terms of excellence than others. That's plain favorites. And sometimes it could even include something like not following through on warnings or holding people to the expectations that you've prescribed. Because what happens is, is those who are doing well in the workplace, in a company, in a ministry, and others aren't held to the standard, they start thinking something like, well, why do I even try? No one is held to the standard that's been prescribed. 
And I think there's a book called that I've seen in Steve Hodges' office. You teach what you accept. And it brings down morale in a team setting. Employers don't do that. And when there is someone who's crossed the line, part of your responsibility is to communicate that truth in love and help them to overcome. Give them opportunities and still if they won't, at some point, there has to be a de-hiring even. I love the E2 training we had for equipping training with our leaders a little while back. Vernon and Charlene Armitage talked about two ways supervisors, ministry leaders can operate. One is a DOT and one's a DOP. One's a doer of tasks, the other is a doer of persons, a developer of persons. The doer of tasks sees their job as, well, I'm going to get my work done through my people. The doer or developer of people sees their responsibility as, I'm going to get my people done through my work. Developed, discipled, encouraged. Now think about these principles for a moment. Even if 50% of believers in the workplace grabbed a hold of these and really lived them out on a daily basis, what kind of seismic shifts in our culture do you think would take place? I think it would be extraordinary. And I believe that God's called us not just to change some lives here and there, but to change culture. Isn't that what the Great Commission is? Go into all the world. Isn't that what the prayer of Jesus is or was? Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now I realize, and we have to realize, that's not seeking perfection, utopia, in some responses, some ways, it's going to be, get worse until Jesus comes. But we can't give up on being the change agents that God wants us to be. Go back to Hebrews real quick, and I'll close with this verse. Chapter 10. Verse 37 and 38. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Some of your translations might say shrink back. Don't draw back. Don't shrink back. Give it your all in your workplace. It matters not only to you, but to others. And it matters in pleasing God. Listen to this quote. God wants you to bring the kingdom of God into the territory he has given you so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what Ephesians is all about. When the gospel of the kingdom comes into a life and a community, everything in its wake is impacted. Don't you long for that? Don't you pray for that? If not, won't you? 
Don't shrink back. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord God, first of all, I just want to thank you so much that we can please you in our workplace no matter what the circumstances are. And that brings tremendous peace. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know Jesus as their Savior, I know they've never experienced a peace like you intend. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you might open their heart right now to realize and understand that Jesus loved them so much that he died on the cross to pay their sins penalty and rose again from the dead to sh- prove that he had power to conquer sin and death. And Lord, that they would believe that right now in their heart and say, Jesus, I believe that. Be my Savior. Come into my life. Help me to follow you and to live for you. And as we're talking about today in the workplace, Lord, I pray if anyone's prayed a prayer like that or doesn't know for sure they know you, that they would seek me or someone out today to make sure that they've made that decision. Lord God, we just want to thank you for the privilege of serving you. We ask you, Lord, whatever ways you've challenged us today to apply this message. Help us, oh God, not to shrink back. Help us to want to please you more than anything in our life. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.